and welcome to News of the World, the program where we discuss the news. And that's you, right. yeah, yeah, that's right. We, got, we need a that's right. That's right. That's right. <coughs> that's on, we only discuss the right news. That's correct. You're, you've come to the right place if you're looking for the right news. I myself am called Mark Fonseca Rendeiro, sometimes called Bicycle Mark, depending on who you are in my life. And on the other side of this wire, there is a Tim Pritlove, and he is in Berlin. Good morning, Tim. Good morning. Good morning. Mm. I think we have now fiddled with all the tiny little audio details and other technical issues so that we can turn to the real stuff. Yeah. Yeah, we're like auto mechanics before the show. We have a toolbox. Yeah, this, this whole podcasting business is still like fixing cars in the 30s. <laughs> <I think laughs> fixing cars in the 30s was just you turn a crank. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you really feel like a mechanic in the digital world. And, yes. uh, it's crazy. It's crazy. In 10 years, oh. we will laugh about these times. Ha, ha, ha. Uh, you we'll know ha, how it used to be. Ha, ha, ha. Only it will be a robotic. We didn't have all those fancy machines and all those fancy devices and we're not blinking so much as they oh. do now. Yeah. Yeah, no, but we are in the dark ages of podcasting still. Only a few lights blinking. Yes. <laughs> so we're sitting ah. here in our pot caves and yep. uh, ready up <laughs> for yes. you to enjoy the news. And yes. What is the news we're starting with? Well, I had this whole list of things, and we still do, but then this morning I wake up to the, or last night actually, I got the alerts about the Israeli strikes uh, in Syria. Now, this is not the first time this has happened, but it's definitely top of the list in the international press, big concerns. Israel struck military bases, Syrian military bases, uh, near Latakia, and uh, this is cause for great alarm. I've been looking up why. I mean, beyond the fact that there's a war going on within Syria and maybe Israel is concerned or uh, the reason so far seems to be, according to the press, of course, I've done none of the actual research myself. I've been here in Amsterdam. But uh, the reason seems to be these, uh, you've heard of the Russian-made SA-125 missiles. They made headlines earlier this year when I guess Syria, the Syrian government bought more from Russia. The Israeli military, I don't know if they've officially said this, but the press is coming out with the word that they're concerned about these missiles, specifically that they would get into the hands of Hezbollah militants, because if you're following uh, this uh, conflict, the Hezbollah militants are on the side of the Syrian government and, well, it seems to some extent uh, in cooperation. So it's theoretically, or maybe more than theoretically, quite possible Anyway, it's enough that the Syrian military has taken action. Uh, always, you know, very shocking, very upsetting for a lot of nations for various reasons, uh, but they've done it. And on the the other side, or, or while all this is going on, the news came out, although it's been muted by, by this strike story or this military strikes, that the chemical, the machines or the equipment used for making chemical weapons in Syria have now been destroyed. You can sleep at night, I guess, if you don't like. <laughs> yeah, so um, they can't make new ones, but, but they still have some. Exactly. So it's a bit of an irresponsible headline, I guess, to grab some readers when sometimes some news outlets are saying, you know, chemical weapons destroyed, 
or at least some variation on that theme. Because if you read the fine print, there's actually, uh, what, a thousand tons of chemical raw materials that are still needing to be destroyed. And it'll take till next year. I think they have until somewhere in 2014 to yes. do this. And, uh, and so the process is still going on. But still, it's good to know that the equipment has been destroyed. It's very interesting to see that Syria so far has complied with Every single deadline that was given out by, uh, the, well, what was the, uh, sorry, the abbreviation of the um, organization who just received the Nobel Prize? Yeah. O-P-W, O-P-C-W. No, O-P-C-W. Yes, the, the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons. Yes, that one. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. so and I think, no, I think everybody sort of expected Syria to go, you know, to and fro and forth and backward and, you know, mm-hmm. try to uh, prevent everything and, and you know, get, probably getting close. But there was sometimes they were even ahead of the deadlines, like a few days and so on, and, and they've complied with everything. And I wonder why this is. I think on the one hand, they have sort of decided that those chemical weapons, they're just bringing them into trouble. And in a way, they do not represent any kind of real military value to them anymore. So they could as well use them as something they could bring into the global process just to keep the international uh, audience away from their conflict. And that really works because since then, you know, reports on the crisis itself sort of have yeah, I don't know if this is just my perception, but but you know, but that is my impression that sort of the world now says like, ah, yeah, see, they're complying, they're destroying their chemical weapons. So what's all the fuss about? Yeah, carry uh, on with your war. It's fine. Yeah, as long as you're not killing people in Israel with chemical weapons, it's fine. I mean, the Syrian government has played a few games where they, with help. Uh, they figured out, you know, this chemical weapons destruction process, it was done on a technicality that the Russians jumped on saying, aha, wait, we will supervise, then it will be okay. And I think, you know, this was in some way an advantage and the Syrians did play, the Syrian government did did play a game here. Uh, so it's not like they've, I don't think they've complied with everything so willingly. They found ways to do it in in an acceptable manner for them. And mm-hmm. using, in this case, their allies to to make them at least look good, at least in the terms of saving face. And okay, so but it's, it's not that they're totally no. opposing this. You know, so they, they really True. jumped on this uh, pretty quickly, and I, I I think they have ruled out. It's also that if you remember when this whole conflict uh, started, really with the uh, bombing of these uh, areas of uh, was it close to Damascus? Damascus um, that there was, I don't know if this has, if somebody has has uh, shed some light on this uh, recently, but from what I understood, there might have been an internal conflict between the military and the Syrian government. That it was sort of the military that acted um, mm. in a way that the government really didn't uh, agree on, and it might well be. But this is just you know my assumption that sort yeah. of. By taking out these chemical weapons, it's also about winning an internal war between government and military. Hmm. I don't know. Yeah, Th- those kind of things are very hard, although possible, to to detect and to really confirm. Because, of course, 
even if that did happen, the government would want to give an impression that everything is, you know, that they're in cohesion with their military. So it's true. This would be very hard to get proof of because... Because they don't, they want to. They want to save face. Yeah. <laughs> they so, want to look unified. So, what do you make out of Israel attacking Syria uh, here and there? I mean, what? I mean, this uh, attack was uh, was an airfield um, or an air, air base, military air base, close to the to the Mediterranean. So that's yeah. not really Hezbollah land. Well, these days. Hezbollah land can expand uh, depending oh. on what cities they help take and, and, you know, in cooperation with the government against the rebels. So I, I don't know. Uh, But why should they interfere there? I mean, this is Mediterranean means far away from Israel. I mean, far away in, <laughs> you know, nothing is really far away in this uh, area, but this is not close to their border. That's not something that is, in, well, should pose an imminent threat. Maybe they're, they're I mean, I, I hate to take the news just as it is written, because yes. there's always more going on, but I am. I'm going to do that for a moment. Uh, weapons travel, and so if they get into the hands, it sounds very television showy, they get into the hands of Hezbollah, then they're going to move through the country, and they okay. can. And so, then they can get to, you know, wherever it is. Okay, so, range so it might be about weaponry passed over to Hezbollah. I think so. so I mean, okay, it's a legitimate yeah. reason. Legitimate. What's legitimate in this whole yes. thing? It's, it's not legitimate to bomb another country. It's so. a <laughs> reason that would sort of explain what yeah. they are doing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But it's crazy, you know, it's, it's one of these things that, Not only Israel, I think the U.S. can do this. There are only a few countries on this earth that can do this kind of thing, and it's it kind of it just it gets accepted by the world, kind of like oh well, okay. Because yeah. mostly countries can't bomb <laughs> other countries. No, <laughs> no, no, you can't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is a very specific. Spe- or has always been a very special yes, uh, situation. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, it's amazing if you think about it. Like you just no, you can't, can't. It's not other places in the world. Not the same. Not the same. But I mean, Israel has this. This I was going to say momentum, but it's not even momentum. It's this. You know, who can? No one can stand up or or say stop it. I mean, it's we don't live in that world. We've seen it now with this whole chemical weapons Syria thing. If even if they did use the chemical, well, they did use the chemical weapons. No one is really strong enough to say, hey. <laughs> stop you know or at least actually enforce the hey stop can't do it so you can carry on in some ways um okay let's uh, let us carry on yeah well yeah so this is connected because uh i was catching up on my numbers uh when it comes to the syrian conflict we've got a hundred thousand dead we've got 4.5 million displaced now A lot of the articles about people being displaced uh, as refugees talk a lot about Jordan, where it's such a you know huge impact uh, that one of the new largest cities is just simply a refugee camp. Uh, I got to learn a lot about Syrians coming to Turkey when I was in Turkey uh, earlier this year. But here's one I, I hadn't heard about, and this is the refugee camps in Bulgaria. Word is, uh, this was via the Global Post, one of my favorite sources, And actually, it was a photo essay, which sometimes does the job when it comes to really making you understand the situation. The refugee camps in Bulgaria are overwhelmed. And one of the specific reasons is Syrians coming through Turkey. 
And this is, one, of course, one of those newer countries in the EU. And basically, it appears like the government wasn't ready, the Bulgarian government wasn't ready for the amount of asylum seekers coming in from Turkey. Um, where are they at? 2,000. They expect another 1,500 by, well, by the end of what is already October. So now we're in November. It's it's becoming a problem. They don't have the facilities to handle this. And sometimes when I think about it, it's Bulgaria. You know, if it's if it's Italy, they've been at this for a lot longer. So in theory, anyway, although we've seen how bad it can get, um, they have the capacity. They're ready for it. They're working on this issue. I'm wondering how much Bulgaria has been preparing for this kind of thing. It seems like not a lot at all. So they say the government is scrambling in a rush to try and figure out where to put people and... Apparently, it's it's horrible conditions, um, and they expect something like eleven thousand people by the end of this year. Also, odd to learn. Uh, we talk a lot about the wall being built between, or has been built between the U.S. and Mexico. Well, the um, with help from the EU, the Bulgarians are building a fence. Twenty, they said twenty miles. So, what is that? Uh, 40 kilometers of of fencing along the Turkish border to help, well, I'm going to say keep people out. And while I was reading this, I learned Greece already has a fence uh, on their border with Turkey. So fences are really in. Oh, yeah, they're expanding in this area. Because this is one of the major uh, holes where people can, you know, go to the EU. Yeah, well... Yeah. Are these all Syrian refugees? I suppose not. I mean, I've I've done work with Syri- uh, Syrians, uh, Syrians and uh, refugees here in Amsterdam. Although we're not on any border uh, of that magnitude, but you you get a mix of people because people could still arrive from other conflicts. It's possible if yes. if, if if it seems advantageous. If the word is out that you can actually make your way through Bulgaria. But I think uh, a lion's share, according to this journalist anyway, is, uh, yes, a result anyway of the Syrian conflict. Um, and, and so they use a photo essay, which, by the way, I'll, I'll link to and is uh, very, really something to see. And that's another thing. It's conditions. You know, when you think about conditions, it's Bulgaria and it's refugees in Bulgaria. I mean, life in Bulgaria is not necessarily, you know, paradise, but when it comes to prisons and refugee camps, I just have this impression and the images confirm that, that conditions are bad. I mean, it's, it's not humane. Yes. And that's, that's something that, I mean, I'm hoping they say the EU is there trying to figure it out. I hope that that's true. I hope that somehow through Brussels, you know, at least humane conditions, because these people didn't ask for a war and they didn't, you know, they're just trying to survive. Um, and in some ways, I think we owe this. You know, we're, we're kind of standing by while the conflict happens. We sell the weapons. You know, if you start making the connections, it's not like, you know, the EU is involved in this conflict. So the least we can do is uh, maybe give, you know, refugees a place to, to, to live safely. But that's just me. That's just you. I mean, well, these, I mean, it's yeah, I mean, it's... Uh I have to see this in the, the, the context of the general refugee problems the uh, EU currently has. It doesn't really seem as if there is a, a, a plan beyond of keeping them all away. You know? <laughs> and uh, right. Germany being the strongest power in Europe is uh, pretty happy with the general agreement that the EU contracts say, like, 
okay, if there are asylum seekers, they have to uh, ask for asylum at the very country they have set their foot in first in, into Europe. Right. So right. as Germany is sort of, you know, in between all of them, they are pre pretty safe from from asylum seekers. And By the way, how open, uh, this is more of a question for the audience perhaps, how open is the border when it comes to Bulgaria to, to eventually to the older EU uh, members? I ask this because it used to be in the beginning when the Bulgaria and Romania first joined, they had sort of slightly different rules, like they weren't fully in Schengen or, I mean, I know enough years have gone by where this is probably now past and now we're all equal, but I'm wondering if there's any special... You know, is once you get into Bulgaria, do you just freely travel? Well, I could freely travel to Bulgaria, and Bulgarians could freely travel to uh, Germany. I'm not so sure there's still okay. an exception for working. Okay. That might be that there is uh, still some time before they can start working. There used to be something for this for yeah. uh, Poland, which uh, ended right now. Mm -hmm. uh, just recently, and uh, there might be something similar in place for Bulgaria, but I don't know. No, and yeah, but for foreigners, the uh, the travel ends there where they're first setting foot on the EU ground. Mm -hmm. But I don't think Bulgaria is really on the in the Schengen. Uh, oh. I'm just I'm just checking this. Okay. Uh, well, I'm sure. Also, I mean, the the people in the comments can. Provide that for us later. Um, I mean, I'm sure that's the ultimate goal of this whole union, that we would all be in and equal and so forth. So it's just a question of where are we on that in that process. Um, yeah. Schengen. Mm. I want to move to the next topic. And uh, yeah, this one comes from Thailand, actually. And it's the conflict I've been watching for a number of years. It's, it's not popular. It's quiet. Um, thankfully... Despite being a conflict, uh, there's been very little loss of uh, human lives ever in this whole thing, but there has been a lot of use of resources. And I'm talking about this border dispute over Priya Vihar. Uh, I I've been talking about this for a number of years because of the danger of military action. Uh, and finally, this past week, I think it was on the 28th, in fact, uh, both the Thai and the Cambodian foreign minister Uh, got together, they shook hands. Uh, I wish they hugged, but I don't think they did. And <laughs> they agreed to uh, end this whole military buildup uh, to make an agreement on the border thing. And actually, there's a ruling coming from the International Court of Justice here in the Netherlands um, about who actually owns the territory around this temple. But basically what this means is, regardless of the ruling, <laughs> as, as far as they say, They're going to work together, no more conflict. Uh, they're going to figure something out where, because the big thing is tourist money. Uh, they're going to figure something out where both countries cooperate for tourism in this temple, in this ancient area. And it's a small piece of news, but at the same time, it's a conflict resolved without violence, which is uh, great and much needed in this world. So I'm pretty pleased to see, if it's all true, we'll see, because... Now, November 11th, this ruling comes from the International Court of Justice. Hopefully, nobody's feelings are hurt since they already committed not to be angry at each other. Uh, we'll see. On the 11th, you'll get an update on this one. But the good news is when you're going to Angkor Wat and other beautiful Cambodian sites or Thai sites, you can also now go to Priya Vihar, which is apparently really beautiful. Yeah, which is in the north of Cambodia. 
So at the mm. very uh, bottom. But but what is the uh, the resolution now? I mean, who owns it? What is it? <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, that officially will be decided on the 11th. But regardless, I mean, it's it's Cambodians for now. But that was from 1962. Yes. Uh, that that may change because, of course, Thailand has rejected this ownership and they presented their oh. own case. They probably have their own maps with nice pictures. Um, but now the word is, like, the Cambodian prime minister has ordered soldiers to, to stand down and Thai foreign minister says the same will happen on their side and they're going to just run it together. <laughs> so is it is it a... Com what's... I mean, is it a Thai temple or is it... Um, I'm trying to uh, you hit understand me with a historical this. question. I don't know. Yeah, it's a Hindu it's a Buddhist. temple oh, of the Khmer Empire. Because looking at the map, it's funny that it's actually on Cambodian ground, but the only road going there is coming from Thailand. You know, so you actually have to pass this border whenever you leave that uh, temple, and I'm meaning right in front of the building. <laughs> it's really crazy in a way. Well, the the Khmer Empire stretched from all the way down, even the, the bottom part of Vietnam, through Cambodia, through Thailand, and up into Laos, even ca caught a piece of China. So that's where this, you know, of course, modern borders uh, didn't often take into account, uh, you know, w where empires and cultures and, and these sort of things. Okay, had, had been. so... Because this is the news our listeners have been waiting for for such a oh. long time. Oh. We're going to update this once the news is out, how the final yes. agreement is going to be. Yeah, And then we all party. Yeah, and we're going to go to Cambodia. Yeah, course. and book a flight. Yeah, that's where I like to go. I, I enjoyed going there. Oh, maybe we're going to Thailand. We just don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Now, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Causing a conflict. All right. <laughs> so that's the update. And then November 11th, we'll have the court ruling, which will be very exciting. All right. This one is for all the nerds out there and the money people and the money nerds. Uh, the Dread Pirate Roberts. Now, let me tell you something. I have not been paying attention to this whole Bitcoin Dread Pirate Roberts. I'm really only waking up to Bitcoin this year. Uh, I know a lot of people are going to be very offended, but I ignored it for a really long time because mm -hmm. I just figured... Let the rest of the world figure out Bitcoin, and then, <laughs> and then I'll catch up. So I'm finally catching up, and I read this news, uh, which you probably did as well. Yes. The great name, the Dread Pirate Roberts, he takes no survivors, um, he was captured in the United States. Uh, now, he's the guy, I, I need to be corrected every now and then. As far as I know, he ran Silk Road, which was a company that, among other things, uh, traded in Bitcoin, and what they... Sold was a lot of illegal or borderline illegal stuff. Yeah, actually, there was sort of an agency passing uh, along the money. So people could sell their drugs on Silk Road, and the Silk Road platform was able to connect the seller and the buyer with complete anonymity. So nobody knew who the other one was, really. Uh, and pass along the money. So they were taking the bitcoins from the buyer and passing it along to the seller without a direct connection uh, and taking their cut. And it was quite a significant cut. I mean, not the cut per se, but the amount of money that was paid via Silk Road was a lot. So, 
He made a lot of money, or at least he made a lot of bitcoins, but he made many, many, many mistakes. So the FBI finally got him. Yeah, and uh, so I'm reading this opinion piece or an analysis by an interesting academic. Uh, I think he's originally Colombian, Nicholas Mendoza, and he points out, and, and this is just you know sort of thinking out loud, analyzing. But because of this arrest, and now we'll see, you know, what happens to the Dread Pirate Roberts, but the FBI now has 324 bitcoins? No, wait. More. They have a lot. They have, what, one-third of all bitcoins that exist? <coughs> oh. One-third? No, I, I, I doubt that. But they have probably a lot. The, 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 he's saying one-third. I don't know... That's, really? Someone will surely confirm it in the, in the comments. I guess because Silk Road had amassed a whole lot of bitcoins. Um, so he's saying technically the U.S. government, because it's the FBI, now is in the bitcoin business. And as a result, at some point they're going to have to, well, use them, I don't know, pass them on, sell them. And so in some way the U.S. federal government is now recognizing bitcoin, or they're going to, as a legitimate currency, which oh, is they, a first. They already, no, no, they already have done that. I mean, uh, it, it's interesting to see how the, uh, the, the governments worldwide, including Germany, have sort of accepted Bitcoin already on a, on, a, on, a, on, a, on a technical level. It's not that they are promoting it as the, as the new currency of the 21st century. Mm-hmm. Uh, it probably <laughs> isn't, but they have sort of apparently jumped on this and more or less taking care of questions like, you know, do you have to pay taxes on this? And, you know, it's more about, okay, now that's just there, how do we deal with it? And for them, it's just, you know, yet another thing where you can pass along money, which is a virtual currencies, and the world is already full of virtual currencies, mm. you know, like stocks and, and, and stuff. So um, it's not that there's a war going on. <laughs> uh, it's just that they have sort of... Um, try to tame the phenomenon by just, you know, sorting it into the legal constructs that are already existing, Mm -hmm. which is an interesting move. So now with the government having a lot of Bitcoins, I don't know what they're going to do with it. They're probably not (laughs) going to sell it tomorrow. Um, But uh, you can be aware that that, uh, the, the government was following the Bitcoin phenomenon for a long time, including the NSA, probably just sucking in all the transaction and, and, and using their big data tools to uh, analyze the structure. And they were also trying to get hold of uh, you know, people like Mr. Dread Pirate Roberts uh, <laughs> by analyzing these transactions too. I, I found the FBI quote. Um, let's see. Along with a prior seizure of approximately, so this is a prior seizure, yes. approximately 29,655 bitcoins, Federal law enforcement agents now seized a total of approximately 173,991 bitcoins in connection with the Silk Road case, which at today's Bitcoin exchange rate are worth over 33.6 million U.S. dollars. So what, what's the sum now? There's this first article you linked to says 144,000 bitcoins. Uh, the total now for the FBI is at 173, almost 174,000 bitcoins. Yeah, but that's, that's a lot. So we're talking about 20 million US dollars here and that's not nothing. No. <laughs> yeah. So, so what this guy's doing, and again, I'm new to this, um, is he's 
to making some speculation and analysis of how it affects the whole Bitcoin, not only the value, but uh, how it's going to be used in the future. Now that the, well, as you said, the FBI has actually been looking at this for a long time, but now it's, you know, this, this time it's much more out in the open. And uh, now we have a, a face that's on trial. And uh, I don't know, maybe this changes things for Bitcoin. I don't, I don't think so. I, I, I don't think so. Because, I mean, okay, now there's a new currency and people are, are, are using that currency to commit crimes. That's not news. You know, we had this, I mean, there's still a right. lot more crime done with U.S. dollars. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, so um, I don't think this is really going to have a big impact because the uh, effectiveness of this Bitcoin business has impressed a lot of people. and uh, They're all now into uh, this game and, and, you know, passing along money uh, easily on the internet uh, directly peer to peer that's just too valuable and if there would be some kind of war against bitcoins you know they can only lose it there's no way because there's no single entity that is controlling this market that's mm -hmm. the point you know you just can't squash it it's it's just going to be there and as long as people put trust into the system You know, and that that's what we're talking about in a currency. I mean, currencies only exist and have value to people because people trust it. You yeah. know, if people would lose the trust into the U.S. dollar, that, you know, the U.S. would be fucked, you know. Yeah. Uh, but there is a lot of trust built by, you know, a huge economy using this currency, uh, military protecting it, and so on. There's no mm -hmm. military to protect the Bitcoin, but there's a, <laughs> a technical concept protecting the Bitcoin because you can't really take it over uh, unless somebody will finally find a, a technicality, a flaw, a flaw in, in, in the mathematics. But so far, it's a common agreement that this is not, you know, there are problems with Bitcoins in the way you have to deal with all uh, the data. But right now, there's no uh, flaw where you could point to and say, like, okay, it's totally exploitable and, and money is uh, worth nothing anymore. That might be in the future. I don't know. You know, some crazy 12-year Indian kid from the <laughs> rural landscape, you know, finally finds out something about, you know, why haven't you looked at this? And everybody is uh, blushing and saying like, oh, we didn't know that. Okay, let's quit this. And this whole market would explode, of course. But, you know, it doesn't really look like this hmm. right now. Yes. I just, you know, lament not having... So if you want to donate to the FBI, <laughs> they have published their uh, Bitcoin address in this article. Uh, yeah. And if they have so many Bitcoins, well, maybe we should just pass them on our donation uh, Bitcoin address too. Um, <laughs> that could help. But yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I read about... I, I don't. Again, I'm still learning this whole thing, but that people are um, finding ways to spam the FBI with advertisements and such through the Bitcoin system somehow. <laughs> Uh, anyway, next item, Brazil. This is one, uh, hmm. I, when I saw it, I was a little bit surprised. So I often think about Brazil as the place for uh, progressive ideas ever since Lula, you know, mm -hmm. moving forward. But in fact, uh, according to, this is from National Public Radio in the United States, uh, Brazil is actually up for a tightening of their abortion laws to get more conservative, more restrictive, and this is coming from the conservative slash religious, especially evangelical Christians, which, by the way, very powerful in Brazil, and 
even outside of Brazil, the Brazilian community is very into their evangelical Christianism. Oh, really? Yes. I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and Jehovah's Witnesses, too, but that's another story. Oh. And um, they're basically pushing to do this thing where they grant rights to the fetus. Uh, they even have a, a policy that may be adopted, looks quite likely to be adopted, that uh, if a, 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 so a rapist would have to provide child support for any offspring of his crime. <sighs> and they're saying, you know, because it's not the child's fault or the fetus's fault and so forth. Um, and NPR, of course, being radio, and, and they do full stories on how there's a huge boom in illegal or non-sanctioned abortions that are very dangerous with a lot of side effects uh, because oddly enough a lot of um, especially in uh, poor women um, who need an abortion who 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 are in terrible s- situations um, they're actually kind of against it I mean they need them but in theory they're against them there's I think there's like two things going on it's like I am I am religious I am generally of course I don't want to harm children so I am against abortion as a principle and then there's the reality of what's going on in your life and your and the horrible crimes that happen so i think that there's a there's a split personality going on in brazil yeah so did i understand you're right that they are coming up with a legislation that is forcing rapists to pay for the offspring they <sighs> yeah to pay like you know a child support well that's not a bad thing um, I look, this is something I think, especially for, for women to, to comment on and you can, and you should on our website. Uh, but I think that you don't want to be reminded of this horror and even receiving payments. First of all, you don't want to be forced to have the child. That's one thing that I think is already true, true, true. I'm not shocking. saying that. No. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause that, that's already, uh, <sighs> I don't, I don't want to, even calling it a reminder sounds too soft. Um, so then this whole payment thing is just another insult. And not only insult, I think it's another trauma. Um, so uh, I think these are policies being put up by people who, who never have to go through these things. And, and it just sounds good on paper. And politically, it gets them votes, especially from these more conservative. And, and you know, because in theory, it sounds very noble. All life is sacred. Yeah. Uh, and so forth. Yeah, and so what the article also does is it pulls in this question of uh, throughout Latin America of cases where more and more uh, women are being forced to uh, carry out a pregnancy after being raped, um, not allowed to have abortions, even though in much of Latin America it, it is uh, legal, uh, depending on what country, of course. Um, but so there's there's a change in the wind, is what these guys. So are is this already? Out. Uh, this is a past law. Uh, this law has already passed, or is it just no. uh, you know uh, under discussion? Uh, it's under discussion. It has not been passed, and but it's probably I, going to happen. I I don't know what the chances are. I mean, I guess it looks strong enough because their um, party or, or their vote in the Congress in Brazil is strong. So, according to the power they seem to have, the numbers to pass this. Hmm. Yeah, and I'll have an update. I don't know when this vote will happen. I think these debates can take very long, but I'll I'll keep an eye on this and and do an update. And the the risk here is also Brazil is often a leader 
in policies. You know, if, if, if Brazil adopts something, the rest of the region may also start to consider it. This is where a lot of things start. So that's the other issue. You know, is this going to pass on and be a trend in, in the region? Okay. Yes. So... That's the end of the news section. Let's yeah. go to the news sources. Yeah, I was looking around at news sources that, that we haven't done yet, and uh, I'm going to go out on a limb and talk about Fast Company. Now, this is primarily a, a business magazine. I mean, that's how it was founded back in the late 90s, 97. And what I've always found um, is that Fast Company, I mean, it has different categories, but when it comes to environmental news, science, even like good statistics and graphs and charts, because we love those things, uh, Fast Company has always been, for me, a source of interesting information that I don't necessarily get in other places. And that's weird to say for what is otherwise just a business magazine. Um, but I really like, they have a section called Exist, uh, which is mostly about the environment. And you always find uh, some academic-type uh, updates about new research, what's going on, and uh, sometimes just about technology, of course. You know, that's an easy uh, subject to write on to get readership. And then they've got another section that I like called Labs, uh, which is also about science and, and new news in the world of science. So it's not necessarily for the whole conflict thing, for the breaking news from the Middle East or any other region, But it is uh, when it comes to like some of some unique reporting on science, the environment, and yeah, business. If you're into that, <laughs> um, it uh, let's see, it's it's American. Anything else good to say about it? No, I re I remember it in the early days of podcasting. Uh, every now and then there would be an article in Fast Company, either on podcasting or something else. And it's impressive to see that it's it's grown into these four different areas: design, exist, um, create, and labs. Mm, so I recommend it. You know, and I'm I'm skeptical of business magazines normally, uh, but uh, this one is one of my more useful ones. Yeah, it's interesting. I didn't know that, actually. Um, I'm just looking uh, at it right now, and uh, they've got really an interesting uh, selection of uh, tech-related stuff. Yeah, I think that's always been their strength. <laughs> yeah, it's very, very interesting source. Yeah, and Funny. so it's. I think it's good to have these types of sources in my mix, as usually I'm looking at newspapers or blogs, and they're always related to international news but this one has a slightly different focus and you still you get unique but but you uh, haven't uh picked any article from fast company yet for the show have you uh no i don't not think really. so uh, sometimes they no no <laughs> sometimes the academic research leads me to but no this week i didn't use fast company i just was reading it and i thought oh i want to include it Okay, so we included it, and now I'm going to include it on our website too, where you can find the list of all the fine news sources we have provided you with over the time. It's a pretty long list now. It's it's growing, yeah, it's uh, <laughs> growing. I have to add it. Uh, I think I have forgot to include the last one, but yeah, eventually I will have uh, this updated so you can find everything. And uh, in case you didn't know, I might have mentioned it, but I'm linking to the exact chapter of each show where we're discussing the site. So if you scroll through the list and, and find something uh, interesting and you want, uh, are interested into the comment on it, you mm -hmm. know, just follow the link and the player will bring you directly to the chapter where we're talking about this. This is 
the power of podcasting on the web yeah, of the 21st century. Especially with <laughs> very innovative tools. Yes. So. Yes. All right. That's it for this week. Uh, we'll be back with you next week, I believe, for another yes. News of the World. And, uh, you know, I think, I don't know if it was last week. It seems like every week somebody writes, a, oh, yeah, it was on the Japan uh, topic. A very long and good uh, response, detailed response from a listener that I believe lived in Japan or still lives there and on the subject of uh, relationships and sex. So by all means, uh, you know, just because it's last week's show doesn't mean it's not still informative and useful. You should check that out because it was a great Yeah, that's uh, by uh, Niels. He actually lives in, in, in Berlin. He's a friend of mine and uh, he's uh, very much into uh, Japan. Japanese uh, uh, topics has studied um, the language and so he knows a bit and probably likes the show and listens to everything we say about this week there's nothing new about japan no um but maybe next <laughs> next time. week maybe yeah <laughs> <laughs> all right well thanks to niels and everybody who leaves comments and and tweets and so forth on the show we appreciate it we do okay yeah. catch so, you next week that's it goodbye goodbye <laughs>